0: And that's what I'm interested in from a work point of view and from a business point of view and from a nat- nature point of view is to find out uh, how to bring the love out in things.
1: Happy New Year and welcome to the Fermenting Place podcast, surely one of the finest podcasts produced in 2021 about wine and other drinks. I'm your host, Daniel Honan. Here, as you may well know by now, we take deep dives via casual conversation into the infinitely fascinating world of fermentative beverages. Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome to 2021, the big show. The year of the ox an omen to be sure what a time to be alive we're kicking off the new year with a bit of a mind expander episode episode 14 featuring one of the legends of the game my guest for episode 14 of the fermenting place podcast is a wine grower of the highest caliber worthy of your reverence and time for he has a unique knack of providing incredible insight into the infinitely fascinating world of wine growing and the universe we live within more generally james milton is a pioneering new zealand wine grower an inadvertent philosopher and a staunch advocate for biodynamic ways of farming especially the milton vineyards which lie close to the coast in gisbon on the eastern side of the north island of air In episode 14 of the Fermenting Place podcast, James and I discuss the weather, artisanal training in France, the differences between intoxication and drunkenness, energy and resonance, QR codes, the interrelatedness of all things, polishing wines, bringing the love, and so much more, obviously. This is a wonderful and sometimes quite personal conversation, mind-bending in parts, perhaps a little incredulous at times, but remember... A mind is like a parachute. It only works when it's open. Ultimately, this is a conversation framed by good intentions and positive energy. Now, before we get into it, let me quickly show you some reasons why, if you dig what you hear, you should consider supporting the show. Exchange a little value for value, you know? You can support the Fermenting Place podcast in 2021 and help to ensure its sustainability by becoming a Patreon subscriber over at patreon.com forward slash Daniel from just five bones a month. Otherwise, why not make a one-off donation via PayPal? It's quick and easy to do and will ensure the production of high-quality future episodes featuring long-form conversations with some of the best in the game, like James. Or if you know what you're doing, consider sending me some sats over the Bitcoin network. Every little helps. Log on to fermentingplace.com for more info on ways you can show your support for the show proper and enable and even ensure the sustainable production of quality, ground-up, listener-led content creation. At the very least, do me a solid and click that subscribe slash follow button. Like, share or leave a comment just so that more and more people can grow their know about how fermentative beverages like wine and other drinks are inextricably influenced by and emergent from the unique environmental and cultural circumstances of a particular place. It's an immense help if you do. Right, so with Schilling and other such lead-ins well behind us, please listen, like, share, subscribe, and enjoy episode 14 of the Fermenting Place podcast featuring legendary New Zealand wine grower, James Milton. Speaking with James Milton, biodynamic farmer and wine grower in Gisborne, New Zealand. Hello, James. How are you doing today? I'm well, thank you, mate. Uh, the sun is shining uh, after a week of rain, so it's it's beautiful here, gorgeous in the Hunter. So tell me what Daniel, tell me what the temperature is. <laughs> temperature is roughly about twenty four degrees, but it feels closer to twenty oh, with the sea breeze.
0: Yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it's summertime, and we have such mild conditions. It's pretty benign at the moment.
1: This time last year, we were under a haze of smoke, and watching oh. the fires unfold, you know, right across the country, which was pretty horrific. Um, and this year, we're contesting with probably a little bit more rain than than we'd like. But let's be honest, I'd much prefer that than a hazy sky. That's for sure.
0: Mm. Yes, this is La Nina, as they say.
1: That's right. That's right. Yep. Tell me, what's the temperature there? What what What's the day like for you? It,
0: the temperature is about 28 degrees. We've been out in the vineyard doing the part of the green season, doing the shoot thinning
1: mm-hmm.
0: and and clipping the shoots into the wire up on our hillside vineyard, which is exposed to the north. So it's just, it feels very hot. Uh, there's a cloud cover. It's raining elsewhere, but out here on the east coast of the North Island, it's not too bad. It's just quite heavenly. In fact, we say that our region has a mild and pleasant climate, which is <laughs> well. Quite curiously,
1: nice. I, from memory, I think the latitude of Gisborne is similar to the Hunter, where I am. Um, okay. Can you confirm that? I have no idea. I mean, I, I, oh, I don't if know. you look on a map, but. Um, you, you have a relatively humid climate compared to, say, the rest of New Zealand. Is that
0: true? Well, no, it's not. And I'm getting older and older and getting less <laughs> and less tolerant listening to the vagrancies of what one's climate is about. Um, we do have humidity, but other places have humidity as well. But we have the sea, Pacific Ocean, just like uh, how far away? 15 kilometres away. So we got, like you in Newcastle, getting this cooling sea breeze off the pacific ocean which comes about 11 o'clock and yes i do admit that it has got a veil of humidity but when you think about nature and grapevines they all require two things and that is warmth and water to make things grow so we actually have quite a cool quite a good climate as opposed to a climate that you have to put on incessant amounts of irrigation and the water and then water to control frosts and all the other vagrancies. We just sort of sit back there and spend most of the time looking out over the horizon. <laughs> it's so cool here. Happy days. I've been there once. Uh, I think I
1: visited last time in 2015. Um, well, nothing's changed. Well, I, it, that's a relatively small yeah. sc- time scale. So I would have think, <laughs> I don't think too much would have changed. Um, Coffee's got better. Oh, good. Well, that's handy. Yeah. Um
0: yeah.
1: Yeah. The um I remember
0: So yes. Sorry. No, 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 carry on. So yes, um uh we are on the northeast coast of the North Island, New Zealand. It's quite a northerly place. It is does have some humidity. We have clay soils and uh with some silt loam on it. They're very young soils are very um, how do you say uh, energized soils. So, not only do we grow wine here, but there's a great movement of growing kiwi fruit and apples and oranges. And over there is uh, maize growing, and further down the road is sweet corn and squash that they send to Asian countries. So, it's quite a prolific fruit bowl. It used to be one of the biggest wine growing regions in New Zealand. Uh, back in the 70s and since then the other wine regions have and the power of Sauvignon Blanc has sort of um, made the other regions swell and we are not in a little decline, but we are here in Gisborne We we have diversity with all the other crops that I've since mentioned.
1: I like so, that. Um, it's not the proliferation of a monoculture. It's a little bit more diverse.
0: Yeah, damn right. Yes, Jolly. I, I mean, there are yes, well, don't get me on a rave just at this stage of the piece, but you know, it's interesting that out in the vineyard at the moment we have fennel that is flowering and that attracts a little parasitic wasp. But together with the fennel, there's also the umbellifera flower coming off the wild carrots. And you look at the top of them and you see these nice little wasps um, taking the nectar off the flowers. And uh, these wasps... Uh, parasitize the little light brown apple moth caterpillar, and so we have a polycot. This is getting me onto the polyculture. We have a polyculture of all these different flowers, and these flowers have got a scent, and that scent sort of transpires itself into the wine as a sense of somewhereness in the wine. You know, as a as a geological, a geographical uh, equaliser. The irony is that to every other bugger growing grapes here, those things are considered to be weeds. And the problem is that they can't find a herbicide now that can kill these fennel and these wild carrots.
1: Could you just eat them though? Wouldn't you just want to eat them?
0: The flowers? Well, the fennel and the carrots. Yeah. Oh my golly. They're just, yes. And so therefore, this is a great diversity of polyculture. And so one man's flower is another man. One person's flower as another person's weed.
1: Yeah. Totally the, different
0: way of looking. The
1: perception um, of, of what we regard as weeds versus, um, you know, something a bit more beneficial aesthetically. <laughs> it really does come down to aesthetics and whether or not it's beautiful to look at. Observation, um, observations of nature and the interconnectedness that is is abundant in nature is one of the core tenets of the way that you farm, isn't it? Um, You're sort of constantly observing the movements and the
0: cycles and the way things are interacting within the vineyard. Yes. Uh, Well, I mean, we are certified organic and have been for about (laughs) 35 years, and we're certified biodynamic as well with Demeter, and we've been practising that, those two practices, for about 38 years. And so by and by and by uh, nature has sort of put its mother nature has put its hand out and, and given us more information about what it is that we're trying to achieve. So therefore growing wine 38 years without the use of herbicides and insecticides and systemic fungicides and soluble fertilizers means that we do tend to have a different look on things because, and this is a really big story, but because we see the beautiful things, you know, that there is this word called disease, and it's interesting this word in the english language you think of other words in the english language that have a dis in front of it you know like disappointed or dis,
1: dissatisfied
0: well, you know, yeah dissatisfied. It's, it's it's like a compound word right yeah yeah it's so what we have learned to do yeah and starting off with the negative so what we've learned to do and this is it might sound a bit twee but over all of these years suddenly we've realized that the word dis we throw that away to the left and we just deal with the ease. So actually instead of fighting funguses in our perceived humid climate, we're actually growing the ease of the soil and the land and the plants and the animals and hopefully the people in such a way that we're trying to find tonics to feed them all of them good health. And therefore we look at things differently, like instead of looking at the weed, as I've said, we're looking at the flower. And then we look at the insects and then we look at the air around it. And then finally at night time, as a wine grower, when we slowly plod our weary way home, having been exhausted from the day's work, and pull open, pull out that bottle from the vineyard that we've been working in today, and you pour the la- the first little bit into the glass and you smell, and suddenly you go, oh my golly, you know what? There's a little touch of fennel in this, in this uh, glass of wine. And, you know, mm. it's not... Obvious, but you can see it in a mind's eye It's just so fantastic
1: yeah, the way that it manifests itself that that well that's that's what everybody carries on about That's what this podcast is I guess fundamentally about is fermenting place okay. and you're essentially doing that when you when you see those things. I remember you telling me a story once of um some blackberries i don't know if they' were growing around your vineyard or they were growing around a vineyard used to. Work at in France somewhere, but there was this there was this palpable sense of blackberry in the wine, and then they they were sort of removed or something. Do you recall that story? I'm
0: Thinking off the top. Oh right. yeah, that was a there was a that was a there was a book called Adventures on the Wine Route by Kermit Lynch. Oh right, I've read that book. It's wonderful. And and it was centered quite a lot around Domaine Tompier in Bandol in the yeah, south of France. Yeah where they had stone walls and on the stone walls by and by the blackberry had grown and there was a sense of blackberry in the wine. And from my youthful viewpoint, I thought these cheeky buggers, are actually picking blackberries and fermenting them at the same time as the grapes to get that flavour. And then it transposed that there was this interchange of aromas between the blackberries when they're flowering and the grapes when they're flowering. And that's sort of what opened my eyes up to this whole Um, sense of place and this whole what you do out in the vineyard actually transposes itself into the wine so that was Adventures on the Wine Route by Kermit Lynch it's Mm -hmm. a a very very good book
1: yeah it's a beautiful book I'm envious every time I read it and I've read it a few times at how wonderful his writing is and yet it wasn't his main you know, um, profession he he was fundamentally importing wine back to America but he just had this way of of articulating place, which, yeah, I, I, it's not beneath me to say I was jealous or am jealous of. I'd love to get Kermit on the podcast. If you're listening, Kermit, I'm, I'm here. We're waiting. Listen.
0: Um, well, actually his son has taken over now and, uh, he's a very interesting young man. Okay. maybe Anyway, son,
1: James, how do you cultivate that viewpoint, that observation technique? Like, it's fairly unintuitive. What in your history, if you give us a brief history of your path to where you are now and, and establishing Milton and everything, I'm just i I'm curious to find out how one can cultivate that sense of, of observation within nature. I know you, you would think it would be relatively intuitive when you're out farming every day, but uh, do you have to be deliberate in the way you do it or is it sort of absorbed through, uh, absorbed
0: through osmosis? Jingoes. Um, how would I start this one? The simple answer is when I was seven, I wanted to grow things like vegetables. And I lived in a place that was very remote down the south west coast of the South Island. So there wasn't wine around there at all. But when I was 14, I then got a fascination with fermenting things like um wild berries and things like that. And it wasn't so much for the production of alcohol. My mother thought I was going to be destined to be an alcoholic before I was twenty. But it wasn't about the alcohol. It was about just looking in the glass jar and looking at these yeasts working in the aromas and the smells, I think. You know, and I was only 14 years old. Then in twenty one I was uh I went with my now wife Annie to France and Germany where we worked. And this was sort of like in the goes late seventies. And uh, so therefore at that 21 years old thereabouts, we were getting exposed to all sorts, all the classic wines of Bordeaux and Burgundy and the Rhine Valley in Germany. So that sort of put off a little light in your head and looking forward from that, you sort of think, gosh, you have experiences in life during your inspirational times that actually stay in your mind, and then they come out again at a time later on. So moving from that, then at 28, we got given an opportunity, Annie and I, because Annie's father was a farmer here in Gisborne. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had some vineyards that was like, how do you say, growing bulk grapes to, for, the, for the larger wineries and stuff. And he could see our enthusiasm. Annie was also a florist, so she liked growing things, and she's a pretty damn good cook as well. Mm. So we got to this point of going, okay, there's an opportunity being put in front of us at the age of 28. So we snapped it up and and uh, started our wine business in 1984, having looked after the vineyards from 1980 onwards. Mm-hmm. And all the people around about, of course, were I'm not gonna slay them, but they were using a lot of chemicals because In my father-in-law's era, he had come out of the Second World War, and all of the bombs and poisons that were made for warfare, for killing things, when the war finished, the industrialists then decided, oh, my golly, we better find another market. And so they chose agriculture or work on the land. So Mm -hmm. these guys were putting on insecticides every three weeks, and they're putting on herbicides that would just leave the ground completely mute. And we looked at this. And from our experiences in Europe, albeit that Europe wasn't so much more organic than what we were seeing in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. But from the inspirations, we thought, sure, this doesn't make sense in, in what it is that we want to make as a wine. And so that's when we kind of started on doing, that, that's inspired us in the 80s. 80 to 84 to, to get our act together. And of course, organic, as far as I could see, wasn't a word that was uh, looked on favorably. So we had to call it integrated pest management, which is such a funny word, integrated pest management. And it's all about no management without measurement. So you had to see the cause and effect of what was happening. Right Now we look at the action and the reaction, And we try and limit our actions. So we limit the amount of reactions you get from what we're doing out there. in the And so we spent 38 years sort of foraging on like this. And at the age I'm at now, you sort of think, my golly, you've had a lifetime of, you know, being ridiculed actually, because you're just bloody stupid doing what you're doing. And now in the last 10 to 15 years, it's, growing more and more and more till finally now in the last seven years the biggest growth in biodynamic agriculture is actually in wine growing and you see them what's happening in Bordeaux and Burgundy and all over the place and the people who are making wines that are attractive to the specialized specialist wine shops and to the fine dining rooms where the sommeliers are They seem to be favoring wines that have got a sense of place to them. Of course, there is 80% of the market is controlled by, how do you say, uh, wines that suit the masses. And so we're only a little drop in the ocean, really. But it's just interesting to see that now this type of growing is being accepted. I mean, as someone said the other day in the UK, when Chateau Lafitte Richard in Bordeaux, Starts growing their estate biodynamically, then it'll be considered normal. And the funny thing is that, you know, the Chateau Latour, Chateau Palmer, I think Margot has even started it as well, uh, Ponte Canet, those sort of people in Bordeaux, these massive, these lovely, lovely, lovely properties. What are they doing now? They're all practicing biodynamics. So I also think that as you're growing through these ages, you know, 7, 14, 14, 21, 21, 28. You go through the process of having an inbuilt intuition, and then you set and get into the dream world where you have your imagination being stimulated, and then you get into the visual world where you're getting inspired. And as i was saying, like being in Europe when we were 21 or thereabouts, and you hear the church bells going up in the way up through the vineyards in the city of Mainz, or you hear the clock tower in Saint Emilion. And that sort of chime, and that music, and the scenery, and the smell, and the colours, and the tastes—they just are so inspirational, and so that keeps coming back to you. Jingo, that's a bit of a rave, isn't it?
1: <laughs> you know, you were saying before about in the last seven years the 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 um, advance of biodynamics being taken up by you know popular wine growing operations around the world reminds me of um, a quote I think it's by Gandhi that's uh, something like first they ignore you then they laugh at you then they fight you oh. and then you win and yeah I find that there's some parallels between your journey and probably many other people's journeys who were applying a biodynamic agricultural management practice to their vineyard or to their carrot farm or whatever it is that they're doing. And yeah, as you said, the wine growing has sort of picked up the torch and is running with it as the standard bearer of this very old, but also quite new, I guess, way of farming. What is the, you're, you're a bit of an expert, <laughs> certainly more than me on, on Steiner, who was the fellow that come up with this system, but he, he kind of articulated He didn't necessarily come up with it. It was just manifest from literally millennia of, of ways of farming, correct?
0: Well, he was a clear... Rudolf Steiner gave these series of lectures in 1924 in what was eastern Germany, or actually bordering onto Poland, to a group of farmers who were getting a little bit... Dismayed after the First World War that the productivity of the animals and the fertility of their seeds was diminishing right. because of this uh, chemical agriculture. So he gave these series of lectures and he gave a lot of lectures on a lot of different subjects. It's pretty amazing when you go to um, what's it called, Rudolf Steiner Audio.com, and he's got all his lectures there that you can, as podcasts, you can listen to. But he wasn't necessarily talking about viticulture. So for us in the 70s, I was reading his agricultural book, and from that, there wasn't any direct correlation back to what we're doing in wine growing. And what I've since found out that if you hire a consultant, if you just say that Steiner was taken in as a consultant, these consultants would never answer your question. They would propose your question with another question so that you actually came to the solution yourself. And then it had far greater profanity for the situation that you're dealing with. Right. So instead of following a recipe bottle or opinion from a third party, you actually had to find the solution yourself, which has proven to be quite interesting because you take a lateral viewpoint on so many things. As to as, as I was saying before about the fennel growing in the vineyard, you know, you, you look at things differently. In fact, uh, so that was Steiner and he had these books. We've since got French wine growers who have got some amazing books, Francois Boucher and Pierre Masson, who have got some great books with a lot of recipes for the teas and the tea science and the preparations and how to make the compost and how to prune your grapevines. And so there's, there's quite a lot of information there now for people who want to get involved in it. Uh, yeah. And I, I mean, we have this other little saying that, Einstein had the theory of relativity, which was E equals MC squared. Mm -hmm. And we have since changed that that formula to mean enthusiasm equals a mass of people with resonating consciousness squared. (laughs) The additional word is resonance. And so therefore we have to find the resonance with the plants and the animals and the people to find where we have this common thread so that we can share and enjoy the information so and the fruits of our labor harmonize with them. Yes. Because instead of me being the boss, uh, instead of me being the boss and going, you know, this is what you're going to do, do, do this, this, and this. It's quite good for the, all the people working with you to say, yeah, well, should we, why don't we try this? Or why don't we try that. At the end of the day, the decision is going to be made for the good of all. But if you don't have the people's enthusiasm, then you're totally wasting your time. You've got. To, I'm, a left-handed Vir, I, I'm a left-handed Virgo too, so I'm a bit of a control freak, and I'm getting quite old now. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Determined, rather than perhaps control freak, um, focused. Uh, I get accused of being a control freak sometimes as well. You know, it's interesting well, this conversation having talking about something like biodynamics, right? And it's something that I've been trying to get my head around for at least, I guess, 10 years now. And it's super difficult to have a conversation with somebody about it who you're trying to explain what it is without going off into some realm of... uh, Blair Walter once described it as Harry Potter goes farming. Um, And, you know, this kind of woo-woo... Uh, elements to it. But when you strip some most of that away, you actually just get down to brass tacks. You get down to first principles, which is fundamentally sound approaches to interacting with the land or your place. Um, and you have to fight through, let's say, you know, some 200, 300 years of um, Newtonian what is it called? Reductionism, where yeah. things are reduced to their infinitesimal little point. And then this idea of, of, of modernity and um, how the sciences, as beneficial as they are, and I'm a <laughs> massive advocate for, for actual science, small s science, not big s science, the idea that nature uh through all of its exper- experimentation of the years, kind of reduced it to this inanimate, uh cold, lifeless machine rather than um this living, dynamic um, entity that's just a part of the the universe, you know, let alone the world. And we are one of the manifestations of nature interacting with that dynamism, resonating. Um, as opposed to being separate from it, you know, we, we're inter, interrelated and that turns a lot of people off. And if you switch off now, that's fine. But, um, uh, I feel like there's meaning if you can get beyond that. And I've found in over the years, quite a lot of personal meaning from interacting with wine in that way. Um. Understanding that it's fundamentally a part of nature as I am, and we're kind of communicating on a level that I can't even begin to comprehend, but I understand it when I smell it, see it, taste it, and I hear it, or feel it. You know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, well, could I add something to that? Yeah. Please. And and. And bouncing right forward just to get to the point is that how often when you take a glass of wine, and then I'll come backwards from there, how often when you take a glass of wine in your mouth and you swallow it, do you then see how long it takes for your saliva to be activated? And this is an amazing thing because starting from the top, when we have sweet sour salt and astringent and then umami, And when you put these different types of wine into your mouth and then see when your mouth waters, you can then conceptualize what sort of food you're going to eat with it through the activity of the saliva, which helps digest the food. Whereas people don't ever stop and think about it. They just drink it and smell it and taste it and stuff like that. So it's kind of like you would add to it that some people drink alcohol to get or become drunk Mm -hmm. but very few people drink wine to become intoxicated and intoxication is the joy of life music dance food feel smells aromas and you can become intoxicated and we say we promote intoxication but have zero tolerance for any drunkenness Hmm. because idiots get drunk and uh wonderful people become intoxicated so in this instance when you look at wine on the table or let's just say from a wine judging point of view when you have 50 glasses of sauvignon blanc on the table in front of you and you've got to sort out which are the best ones then i see people wine judges now pick up the glass swirl it look around the room swirl it again, and then sniff it, sip it, and then spit it. And they go, yeah, that's a gold medal wine. And they give it 90, 19.5 points out of 20, you know? And I think, oh, my golly, that's so – they haven't seen the life energy in the wine. It's too brief so
1: a d- moment to be able to really comprehend what the hell they just put in their mouth.
0: Well, especially when you look at the meniscus and the uh, the meniscus around the edge of the glass – and the, the density of the wine, but also the luminosity, you know, the color in the wine. This is a white wine that has got a shine to it, which is what we're finding more and more and more now with Biron Empty Wines because of uh, the, the process of harnessing the air and the light into the wine. And so we're, I'm trying to say to the people on the judging table now, you've got to take the glass, tilt it over, so uh, look at it, smell it, and then give it a little swirl and then taste it. So instead of doing sniff, sip, and spit, I'm trying to get them to do touch, pause, engage, much like a game of rugby, actually. (laughs) Touch, pause, engage, so that they actually see 30% of, if there is such a measurement, 30% of the wine's quality, which you lose as soon as you start vigorously swirling the wine around to try and make the aromas come out as you've been taught to from the academic places. So they're losing part of this 30% of this magic that the wines have. Um, And then if Harry Potter was going to become a farmer, then what we do realise is that we have spring, summer, autumn, and winter. We have earth, water, air, and light. And we have roots, leaves, flowers, and seeds. And then we have the types of personalities to go with it. And then we have the fabrics of silk, satin, linen, and lanolin. And then you can see that if you're a wine grower, there is parts of those elements that is particular to your way of growing things or making or, or producing the wine, bringing the wine into, into the world. And as a result, when you see what is particular to you, for example, grapes, wine is made from grapes, and grapes have uh, a berry with a seed inside it, so that's a fruit and a seed. And we want to have big seeds in our grapes and smaller grapes, so that the surface-to-volume ratio of the f- Bolt of the grape to the skin of the berry to the size of the seed is completely different to if we were an apple grower where we want to have a large fruit and a small seed. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And so part of those grapes, the grapes that we're growing with the larger seeds means that we get phenolic compounds coming out of the seeds and out of the skins. And what we're seeing now is that these phenolic compounds whereby people, winemakers, would have Taken, find them out with casein or fish or gosh, egg whites or PVPP or something like that to take away these phenolics or the astringencies or the bitterness.
1: Polyvinyl, what
0: finding polyprolidone. Now? Yes. Oh, oh, my golly, I just <laughs> I've never seen it in my life. But um, now we don't use it, we haven't used any findings in our wine forever because we want the phenolics to be there because we found out now and we think we understand it correctly. Is that these substances are the biological antioxidants uh, to keep the wine seemingly fresh without having to rely on higher amounts of sulfur dioxide? But these uh, these phenols are actually good for your blood. They're good for your own circulation system, the same as the phenolics so are good in the sap of the vine. So the whole thing goes round, around, around, and you just keep following that pathway through to what is he doing? as to whether you're growing grasses for a dairy farmer or wheat for making bread or grapes for making wine or apples for eating. And retain- is that complicated?
1: And retaining those phenolic compounds it gives mm. you a textural element that tends to go unnoticed, I think, a lot of the time when people are tasting wine. It's something that I think about quite often is the textural component. And so something, something, it's actually probably one of my favourite things about wine. Second, probably to aroma, but that textural quality by leaving those elements in and not finding them away, not stripping them away, not removing them, uh, adds an entirely new dimension to the wine, and therefore to the pleasure that you could potentially extract from it
0: when you're drinking it. Yeah, well, to your to the action of saliva and to your ability to become intoxicated. Right. Right. So, you know, some older wine critics who give you scores out of a hundred or something like that, you know, I invariably read some of their comments and, you know, they comment that it's a little got a little bit of bitterness or it's got a lot of bitterness, and so they don't give it a very good point or something like that. And I think, gosh, they're not even actually looking into as you're talking about the texture of the wine. They're not looking at that sort of stuff because they consider that to be a fault or yeah, not I've... polished enough. Someone, someone said to us once, your wines don't have polish, uh, as much polish to them. And I went, polish? I thought that was something you put on an oak table
1: yeah, to make it shine. Um, yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah, Don't talk to me about bloody polished wines. Oh, God.
1: Well, I feel like there's probably an asymmetry there between the producer and the critic. And the critic is someone... You know, people call me a critic and I hate that word and I don't criticize wine and I don't criticize beer. I write tasting notes often, but um the
0: the, the Actually, op- yes, in this modern day and age it's called an influencer, isn't it? Uh, okay. yeah. <laughs> With a hashtag a hashtag
1: in front of it. Yeah, God help us. Oh, uh, that's the way it's going. I don't know. I uh, that's a dark rabbit hole. I'm not really keen to fall All down. Right, we won't go this. there. But there's that asymmetry between the producer at one end of the spectrum and the uh, the the critic at the other end who is – well, actually, the consumer would be, I guess, at the other end of the critic is kind of the mediator between the two who is supposed to be some sort of quality comptroller or or, or thereabouts that, that uh, has been afforded a position to tell people what they should and should not drink And, you know, you can use it as a consumer, as a data point, as a bit of insight and information to help you make perhaps a more informed selection because, let's be honest, when you walk into the bottle shop these days, there's that much garbage on the shelves and how do you mediate what's good and what's not. So a good story or a good tasting note can help you do that. But if that critic is not, um, in tune or is not resonating with the producer and the producer's intent, then their tasting note is not going to be as, um, beneficial to the end consumer as someone that perhaps is more resonant. Um, do you you see what I'm saying? This, you're creating something out of nothing and those wines that you produce, uh, wouldn't exist on the planet. Had you and annie and and your staff not put in the time and the imagination and the effort and the, and all those other things and the skills to produce these things and then to have someone sitting behind a computer <laughs> uh, or, or a wine glass in a white coat for, you know giving giving it a thirty second glance and that's it yeah. it's it's such a that's the asymmetry that I'm talking about is it doesn't quite add up when you run
0: the numbers. What do you think of QR codes on the back of a label? Um,
1: On the back of a wine label, I think aesthetically they look a bit ugly and I am a big proponent for aesthetics. It's why I do enjoy the, the existence of corks in bottles. I know that corks do have a tendency to ruin wine and, but I'm certainly not in that FU cork brigade. Uh, I admire screw caps as well for the security and safety and so on, but I really get a little bit of pleasure from popping that cork. And I think that little one percenter is, uh, is, is underappreciated. So QR codes on the back of a wine label, again, they kind of distort the whole aesthetic, but maybe I'm a Luddite, who knows.
0: Well, let say you had a QR, like we haven't got QR codes, but I'm, you, we're trying to find a way to articulate what it is that we have worked all year to create and put in a bottle and we want the person who's going to pick it up off the shelf if they don't buy it from us directly, the person who's going to pick it off the shelf to get an idea of it. If it hasn't scored 98 points out of 100 or got a gold medal or um, all these other bling bling things that go on the labels, that if we had a QR code and I could have on that, it would set you off on a... YouTube little clip, or else some music that we consider is beneficial when drinking this wine. For example, we have a skin, a series of skin fermented wines called Libiamo, mm-hmm. and the reason why we came up with Libiamo is Verdi's opera from La Traviata. And when I listen to that music, it just kind of makes my mouth water. And when I taste, when we started making these wines about seven years, eight years ago now. I put these wines in my mouth and I just thought, gosh, these are incredible. They've got such a texture, as you said before. And so, therefore, when we're tasting these wines, I sometimes slip on some music, like Verdi's opera or some operatic music. And you know what? It makes the wine so much, <laughs> uh, it improves the enjoyment of the wine into another dimension. Yeah, it's one and of my favorites. I'm not saying that people are going to from the QR code has got to listen to and like our music because they might go, "I don't like your music, anyways, so I won't like the wine." But um, it's just quite an interesting way of trying to get this feeling across to the consumer without without a third party endorsement.
1: Yeah, I I dig that. I I think that's there's some good intentions behind that. My personal experience with QR codes prior to. COVID nineteen was sending and receiving Satoshis or SATs um on the Bitcoin network. But um in terms of QR codes these days, I <laughs> I I I hate them because of the, the whole COVID thing. But um I get that. I think that's that's, that's actually, it's actually it's probably a pretty innovative thing now that I think about it. Um usually if I'm drinking a bottle of wine and I'm putting my music on, I I, I like those unintended uh, moments when you do just resonate with a bottle, and yeah. it could be because of the company that you're keeping at that moment, or the place that you're in, or the music that's on, or a combination of all of those things, and all of a sudden you're you're sort of awestruck or 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 or. I like that word Andrew Jefford used in episode one. Astonished, you're just stopped yes. for a moment and <laughs> you try yeah, and unpack that good. moment. He's such a good writer, that man. Yeah, he's wonderful. He's wonderful. Uh, again, one of one of the the people I look up to. <laughs> wish I could write like. Um, but trying to force that via a QR code, um, my initial reaction is. You know, just from the aesthetics alone, it might not look that nice. But, I mean, it's not, who am I? Uh, I wouldn't
0: I, listen to I, me, I, I, personally think it's a, I personally think it's a load of, uh, I don't like it at all. Right. Because I'm looking at the next generation now or the younger people coming on with their fancy labels and they're making, you know, uh, interesting wines with minimal intervention. Mm-hmm. And the last thing you want on the back of it is a freaking QR code or even for that matter, a barcode. Have you heard about the story with Anne-Claude Le Flavre at Domaine Le Flavre in Burgundy, where she had barcodes on some labels and no barcodes on the other labels? Right. And she was farming, she, they're farming biodynamically, of course, and they're looking biodynamically looking at the bio-life dynamic energy, so therefore the life energy of the wines that they're producing. And they did sensitive crystallization or a form of chromatography of the wines, to see whether the, whoa, without getting too far out there, to see whether the life energy was harmonising. Mm-hmm. This so is the chromatography.
1: The there's the, the, the sort of shapes discern discernible shapes within the liquid. That then there's sort of yes. there's like fractal patterns.
0: Yes, yes. So she had some the same wine. Some wines had a barcode on, some wines didn't. And so she scanned the bar. She uh, did chromatography on the. First wine without the barcode, then the same wine from another bottle, of course, but the same wine with the barcode on it. She then scanned the barcode as one would in a retail outlet and did chromatography on that same wine. And it was a completely different picture. So you think then if you, on some of our our highest quality wines, we don't have any barcodes on them because we don't want to have, what is the light, infrared light coming that, through
1: it? Yeah, on? that infrared laser sort of thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we we don't want that coming into it. And therefore, I'm going right back to this QR code. Do we really want that energy coming through the wine as well? I mean, for goodness sake, the dear our dear friends in the Adelaide Hills, um, where my daughter Monique lives with her partner Tim and grandson who I haven't seen for a year, um, <laughs> Felix. Yeah. Uh up in the Adelaide Hills there. Manon. Incredible. Manon, ones. yes. Wow. Oh gosh, aren't they just they're so mm-hmm. They're so zesty. They're They're delicious. Oh, energetic. But um, what was we talking about? Well, that's right. Uh, It's Maybe a bit too far out there, I don't know. But the fact of the matter of writing I love you on the inside of the label so that the wine sees, can read your intention about how you're feeling about it and that it actually, the wine resonates with this in the harmonious way, that's pretty far out, isn't it? Imagine getting a label like that, looking at the bottle and seeing this writing on the inside of the bottle, communicating to the wine inside. Oh, well, Why not? Communicating to the person that's
1: drinking it. It's all about intentions. I think intentions and incentives are incredibly important and foundational for uh, conducting oneself in the world and being in the world, but... Uh, I liked uh, I opened up a bottle of Gareth Belton's uh wine from the Adelaide Hills as well Gentle Folk. Um yeah. and it just said Let's dance on the cork. <laughs> yes. And Perfect. that just made me yes. smile. And yeah. You know, it it might have cost them an extra I don't know, 2 300 bucks to do it but and for a moment's little smile but I I loved it. I thought it was
0: funny. And Oh, uh, that's so cool, isn't it? Yeah. But you see Also, that look, we haven't got – please, for your listeners who are going to be listening to this, I don't want to get involved into a lengthy conversation about corks versus screw caps because it's kind of done like a dinner.
1: And it's a dull conversation. I'm sorry, James.
0: (laughs) Well, but the thing is that there's five phenolics coming from the seeds, the skins, the stalks, the barrels, and finally the fifth one is from the cork. And so we have to have Mm -hmm. that in balance. But imagine this – so instead of having a QR code on the back label – You've got a little thing called let's dance on the cork, and that makes you happy. Yeah, exactly. I think it's so good. Yeah, and um, they're the ones to send Yeah, yeah, but they're going to be, they're going to be uh, to the power of two soon, and so there'll be four, and then there'll be sixteen, and then we. Well, uh, I, yeah. I, I don't want to sound too nutty, uh, because I have got a business to run and I've got to pay wages and. So we're trying to do our wine making in such a way that we're respecting nature, but also, you know, the saying is you can't be green if you're always in the red. So we've got to look at the pragmatic way of running a business. But I went to a, uh, we had a, um, an exhibition in Australia about 10, 12 years ago. And for our importer into Australia, he had all his other uh, agencies there as well. And we had a dinner after the uh, exhibition and I happened to, someone asked me for my business card and on my business card it says artisan wine grower because I do feel that I've learnt my trade from the masters back in the old world. And this guy looked at me, he was from Western Australia, and he looked at me and he says, what on earth is an artisan wine grower? <laughs> and I said, uh, hold on, um, just let me ask you something. Do you measure molecular SO2 in your wines? He says, yes, yes, of course I do. I said, oh, that's fine. You'll never understand what an artisan wine grower is then. <laughs> and so I'm trying to be a bit disparaging against those people who have been taught how to make wine and the chemistry of wine compared to those people who have learned it from the masters and look at the biology of the wine. Yeah, the, the bio, the life in the wine. The life. It's a growth industry. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Well, it, it, this is the thing. This is what I was talking about before is, the the way that we conduct ourselves and, and are, are in the world, the, the the whole use of I mean the the, the term conventional agriculture to imply that uh, sp- the spraying out of synthetic agrochemicals onto a onto a piece of land is somehow conventional, even though it has less than a hundred years of history. Compare that to the 2,000-odd the, the years of agriculture and, and, and how that's evolved over time from the Fertile Crescent, you know, uh, outwards in terms of a farmer's way of viewing their land, uh, observing the change in seasons, observing, as you were talking about before, with those fennel flowers... Uh, the interaction of the the life of the bugs, of the the bees, and so on and so forth, that are uh, interacting with those plants, and and just seeing how they add or detract from whatever it is that you're trying to achieve out on the farm, and that's in some ways unconventional. Uh, it's a little, it's always struck me as a little odd. Um, it's such a brief amount of time and yet it dominates the way that we go about our lives, even to the point of, um, and this is something that I've been thinking about for probably the last 18 months or so is in terms of the economic systems that we're beholden to and how they distort our incentives and, are again, um, poor replicas of, uh, a monetary history that 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 has served humanity quite well for much much longer than than the current system which has been operating again for less than a hundred years or so that's a tangent that uh' is probably not worth discussing on this that's, podcast
0: that it's kind of like a screw cap court thing too it's a big big hole a big uh, space mm mm. But we can Sorry? go.
1: We can go down some of the routes. I, I'd like to. I'd like to dive into the vortex of biodynamics and what the meaning of that that vortex is. But also, I'm looking at a photo I took uh, on your farm of some cow horns that you'd recently dug up, and they're full of dirt. Now, actually, no, they're full of soil because dirt is dead soil. Uh, can you explain to me the process of burying cow horns in the ground and what that actually does? Because they're fermenting, right?
0: Um, I suppose in this way of it, it's quite – yes, okay. I, I, I attempt it, but, you know, it's, it really goes on for three or four hours. But basically people get a bit screwed up about the fact that you put cow manure in a cow's horn and bury it in the soil – during the winter time. But if we stop and think about the rhythms of life and the life energy and the yin yang or the chi of uh, the soil, and understanding that the manure is coming from a cow and particularly a lactating cow, that's a cow that's had a calf and is producing milk to feed that calf that we're using the manure from that animal because while she's producing milk, she is enhancing the calcium process. And the calcium process, ever so briefly in biodynamics, is kind of like the structure of what it is that we're doing with our work on the land. So that's why we use cow manure because it's enriched with many microbes, but it's got a high degree of calcium in it as well. You think of the cow, having cloven hooves which is a connection if I use the word divine connection to the soil as opposed to a horse's hoof or a human footprint a cloven hoof and she has four stomachs and she rhythmically digests her food that she eats when she takes the grass she actually sniffs out from her sinuses onto the grass as she then pulls the grass into her mouth so she's sort of taking and giving back at the same time which is stimulating to the grass and then the grass goes into her first stomach and she sits down and then starts belches and then starts chewing her cud so she is rhythmically meditatively digesting her grass in the first stomach when she's finished that she stands up swallows and it goes into the second stomach the third stomach and the fourth stomach and finally comes out as cow manure Very, very enriched. And if you're into cow manure, you can see, you can almost tell by the shape of the manure. If you're really into looking at shit, man, I tell you, (laughs) uh, you can see the cow manure, the difference between whether she is having a calf, had a calf, or whether she doesn't have a calf. And both of those two manures are different compared to bullshit, which has a completely different structure of manure. So then, without confusing it, then we take that, come along and scoop that cow manure up, particularly if it's good and alive, and we do this in the autumn time, and stick it in the cow horn, which is sort of the receptacator of her meditation of digestion. Uh, There could be some comment that it is also, the cow horn is also in a spiral or like a vortex, so Mm -hmm. that it's got a rhythm going out to the heavens and coming back in again. And the, when you put it in the soil, you have it pa- facing upwards, like we, are, we have our cow horns facing upwards, and particularly to the north, and we bury them under about 30 centimetres of soil. Right. And they, as you said, ferment in that cow's horn, and you, and you do that from for six months. Mm-hmm. And you try and do it when the moon is in an earth sign and in the descending period. So, you know, that's a 28-day cycle that quite a lot of your listeners will be familiar with. Uh, we do it in the right rhythm and finally after six months or thereabouts, you pop it out of the horns and this is completely changed into a very, very, very highly populated substance full of microorganisms right. that have intelligence to them. And the intelligence is kind of like, again, going back to the way the cow digests the food. So it's got this highly um, energised, Substance of which you only need sort of like a dessert spoonful per acre when you go and put it in warm water and stir it for an hour. And the curiosity about that is that microbes like to live in a favorable condition, and that favorable condition is warmth and water. Mm-hmm. So we put this preparation now, it's called Preparation 500, we put it into some warm water. Uh, in a bucket or a container and that water is 38 degrees or 37 38 degrees which is the same temperature as your blood funnily enough and then we stir it rhythmically vortex going this way vortex going that way vortex going this way for one hour and you just have to sit here and you go why on earth do you have to take a stick and you do this silly job like this and you've got to do it continuously but why do we do that how did Rudolf Steiner think of this nonsense until you stop and think that a microbe goes through one generation every 20 minutes in favorable conditions. And after three generations, you cannot get enough oxygen into the water to keep the billions of microbes alive. So then they start asphyxiating because there's not enough air for them to keep breathing. So during the first 20 minutes, we have a million microbes per several mils. The next 20 minutes we have a billion in the last 20 minutes we have a trillion microbes and after that one hour it's been stirred and it's hugely energized and then you put it back on the soil and it's like continuing completing the circle of life because that's where the manure came from mm-hmm. and you've stored it preserved it energized it put your own enthusiasm into it as you're stirring it meditatively kind of that's that word again and then you flick it out in the ground, and there's all these nice little microbes in the ground sitting there, going, "God, welcome home, you fellas!" <laughs> and and all these microbes come raining out of out of your intention. It's it's pretty cool, really. And you and, and you know there might be some people who think, "Oh, what a load of nonsense!" You know, you, you just go and put on some nitrogen or some chemicals. But maybe this is not the time and place for it. But it's. In terms of team building, you know, as, as a wine grower and as a person with vineyards and a person with a winery and so on, uh, when you sit down in the autumn time and stir this Preparation 500 with your guys and with your people in the vineyard and your people in the winery, even the office staff, um, it's, it evokes quite an interesting conversation sitting around the buckets as the people put their intentions into it. It's quite a good team-building exercise to go through. And as a result of that, their enthusiasm, E equals MC squared, their enthusiasm goes out with each droplet back onto the ground. And then the ground takes on this sort of springy, springiness to it because the microbes and the mycorrhizal fungi and things like that are getting stimulated. So they're all having a big party down there underground the as well and jumping around the place and having a lot of fun and evoking warmth and it just keeps going on and on and on in a in a
1: cycle i like the the concept of scale in in that with 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 regards to the vortex if you think about the, the the spiral effect of uh the horn the spiral effect of the water being stirred um and scale that up to you know like well the milky way which is a spiral armed galaxy um yeah and And I guess on the surface you think, yeah, maybe that's coincidental. But I feel like if you dig a little deeper, there's got to be something to that interrelatedness um, that's manifest in nature. I mean, the spiral shapes that you get in a lot of New Zealand um, um,
0: flora. Indigenous art. Indigenous art. Right, yeah. right, exactly. Maori art is amazing. It's filled with the guru, lots of gurus.
1: And and so there's got to be something to that. I, I, I obviously haven't read enough into it, but there's I have an intuition that there's something there and that those spirals, like I've got a spiral on my hand um, that's tattooed on my hand, and I got that when I was actually in London, but it was to fundamentally remind me of... My time in London, but also to—I <laughs> don't think I've told anybody this. So now I'm just going to tell everyone on the podcast. Be careful! <laughs> We're down this hole now. Let's just do it. But when the tattooist was putting the spiral on, she had the the tail of it uh, facing towards my body, um, towards my arm, right? And I said, yeah. "Oh no, 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 no! You need to, you need to have the tail extending out towards." my thumb, i.e. out towards the, my hand, out towards the world. And the idea was that the energy would be brought in from the world and also be transmitted out f- to the world from me via the spiral. And, um, and she looked at me like that was crazy. But, um, <laughs> the other thing is that it inter- interconnects with, um, there's a song by rock band Tool and they have a song called Lateralis which is about riding the spiral and seeing how far you can push it to, to, to go to places that you never thought were possible. And, um, you know, there's, again, that sort of echo or resonance that, that, uh, of that spiral that has been in my life but also manifests itself in nature. So I, I don't know. I, I, it's something that yeah. I always uh, think about.
0: Well, when um, I mean when you're talking about the spirals and vortex and stuff like this, I got laughed out of the room once in a in a conference where I said that water that travels down an irrigation line, water never travel never travels in a straight line, and that in actual fact, at the beginning of every irrigation line, you should have a little uh, cone in it that actually puts a current into the water so that it goes in a circular motion down the straight line. Mm-hmm. And everyone thought that that was totally crazy. But you just have to stop and think about what it is that we're talking about. And when you go and pump water down a black irrigation line and maybe impregnate it with fertigation in terms of some soil um, stimulation, you can understand that when those drops come out onto the soil, they have got absolutely no energy in them whatsoever. And the roots who just simply require water sort of congregate around that spot that gets wet, yeah, but in actual fact, the microbes in the soil are not being looked after at all, so the resulting winds are relatively boring. You know when you watch water
1: running down a stream or a river and it bangs up against the rocks and or or, or comes in, the tide comes in and out at, at like a break wall or something like that, and in and around the rocks, spirals and vortexes appear as the water swirls. In the yeah. in the water, and that just happens naturally as well. I, it's one of my favourite things to do out on the break wall here in Newcastle. Nobby's just sit and watch that for twenty minutes or something, and not think about anything else. Um, but again, that that spiral manifestation, and, and 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 the fact that it happens at scale, like like a fractal, you know, like that Mandelbrot. Um, I can't remember the, the that mathematical model where everything just becomes. Um, you know, a, a, an image of of a similar thing at at, at a larger scale. Um, yes. You know, and there's but these things happen that. naturally. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so this is kind of what I was saying before about that 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 sort of that phenomena exists in the world, provided you're attuned to it, or at least willing to 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 receive it, and the, the, the way that we've been taught to think about the world over the last hundred years or so is almost the antithesis of that. And it's stripped away all of the, the meaning that you can sort of find in life. And I don't know, I I feel like on the other side of that somewhere is, uh, is, is, um, a sense of ritual and tradition and like a belief system that, that kind of centers you and and enables you to be more attuned with the world or something. Again, I'm sounding super woo woo. I knew I would do this when I (laughs) spoke to you, James, but you know, uh, I try and be as, as calculated as the next person, but it doesn't give me any sense of joy and pleasure. I, I get joy and pleasure from thinking about those things and, and, finding the resonance, as you, as you were talking about before, uh, between these unconnected, un- on, on a superficial level, unconnected phenomena, but uh, actually when you look a little deeper, incredibly interconnected?
0: Mm. Well, um, we, we do get some people who want to come and work here in this lovely wine region. And I I ask the people, to, like we get interns coming from all over the world wanting to come and work on a wine estate like this. And I asked them three questions, and the three questions are, can you cook, what music do you like, and what's your style sign? Hmm. And some people, particularly some European people, are curious as to why on earth I want to know what their style sign is because nobody has ever asked them that before. And my comment to them is I want to know who you are and what your energy is and what your aspirations are and what your artistic ability is from the food or the music, something like that, so that we can actually work together in harmony. And I found that interesting this season with the COVID situation is this whole word mindfulness should be coming into it more and more and more. Of course, we're not getting all the travellers that we used to get last year, but we're still getting some people coming through. And the thing is that we have to take care of their... We have to preserve and, and, and cherish their their good intentions, and also their own individuality. The same as a microbe in a soil, or the same as a good yeast in a ferment, or the same as uh, anything that's happening in life. And that's what I'm interested in from a work point of view and from a business point of view and from a nature point of view, is to find out uh, how to bring the love out in things because then you'll see that on the meniscus of the wine, that there is this, I used the word before, this luminosity or this venosity in the glass of wine that we have grown. And it contains all of this energy from the people who are working out in the vineyard and in the winery and stuff. And also squares, you know, you don't, when you have a right angle corner, fluid doesn't really like to flow on a right angle, into the corner of a right angle, because it likes to go round in circles, which I suppose is why we put wine in barrels and why wine that is fermented in square tanks, I think they call them pinot pots or something like that, there's this dead energy that is in the corner of every tank like that, and you can see that in the taste of the wine. You know, it tastes different.
1: Yeah. James, I want to ask you a quick fire series of questions to wrap up the conversation.
0: Yeah, Um, because I've got to get back out of the bloody vineyard. Christmas is coming pretty soon, and I've got to get out there and Finish this work off
1: exactly. I, I don't want to. You, you've you've lent me far enough m- more time than I, I deserve, and uh, and uh, I need to. You, you need to get back out to the to the site. So, with that in mind, what's your star sign? I'm a Virgo. Okay. And I'm left-handed. And you're left-handed. Now, for those of us not uh, au fait with with astrology, what does that indicate?
0: I'm an Earth sign. So there's there's, uh, 12 constellations or 12 signs and three of those are associated with earth or water or air or fire. So you can see the different temperaments. the same as when you read a children's book like Winnie the Pooh or The Wizard of Oz or Finding Nemo or any of these books. There's always four different characters in Mm. each of those stories that stimulate the person who's reading. They can resonate with the person who's reading. Next question. What do you least love about wine? Oh, what do you least love? That's sort of funny, isn't it? Uh, those wines that make you sneeze. <laughs> what do you most love about wine? The wines that make you go, mmm. Excellent. The wines that, you know, what was that point that Andrew Jeff had said? Astonishing. He said? The wine, the wines that leave you in a sense of astonishment. Mm, mm. What's one word to describe what you do? Um, one word to describe what we do. Uh, satisfaction. Okay.
1: Think of a favourite album or a piece of music. What is it and what do you love
0: about it? The music that I like most, and my wife and my family chastise me for it, is this series of music coming from the Bar collection of music. And what I like about it is it's got this ethereal little chant to it, which puts you into the dream world, where you can manifest your thoughts in a constructive and organised manner. moment
1: (laughs) that's awesome batman superman or spider-man
0: uh sure look i I really i'd have to say batman i suppose Mm -hmm. yes
1: if we were ever in a position to recreate the tyrannosaurus rex should we do it
0: uh, if we keep doing what we're doing, we most really will have to <laughs>
1: uh could we use them could we use them for protection like a, against um hostile actors or will it be used against citizenry from hostile actors
0: Oh my golly well uh the best form of defense is love, and so if we need to protect ourselves then we should offer that hand of kindness and love and then the word hate and enemies will never exist and the climate will improve and the carbon will build up in the soil and we should be able to live happily ever after perfect james thank
1: you very much for your time i really appreciate it i knew that i would probably go off on some tangential things but uh if yeah, history I, dictates I it's hope, a pleasure
0: Daniel Hohner and I hope your readers or listeners haven't gone oh my god and pushed the stop button about 55 minutes ago but it's been good thank you for including me in in your endeavours and in your intelligence and in your commentary and uh, just remember we're not some people might think we're standing on dirt but it's actually the rooftop of another kingdom so let's go through carefully thank you James
1: 14 done. What did you think? Did you enjoy it? Did you gain any knowledge, any insight, any wisdom? Did your mind bend like mine did? I was uh, a little bit personal in the few moments there, especially with the anecdote about the tattoo. Anyway, let me know. Leave a comment if you're using Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. Otherwise, you can tweet me on Twitter or tag me on Instagram at FermentingPlace or simply say hello and give me a guest suggestion via email, hello at fermentingplace.com. Okay, that's enough from me for now. I've got a big episode coming up, but until then, take care out there. Don't forget to eat, drink, and be merry, and I'll speak with you next time on the Fermenting Place podcast.